0: If you know someone with Parkinson's or you know nothing about Parkinson's, you will want to read Brian's story. Order your copy on Amazon or visit your favorite brick and mortar bookstore to grab one. Are you a Kindle reader, audiobook listener? We've got those versions as well. Support Brian's Foundation, which supports those afflicted with Parkinson's, and pick up your copy today. You can also follow me on both Twitter and Instagram at Rick Buecher. I'm a lot of places. But there's only one place you can hear me talking about story angles and perspectives that you are not likely to find anywhere else, primarily but not exclusively involving the NBA. And that is here. We're about to enter the NBA's 75th anniversary season. Or at least that's what the NBA is calling next season. I'm not exactly how or why the league decided that this was the seventh, 75th anniversary since the official National Basketball Association was formed on August 3, 1949, between the Basketball Association of America and the National Basketball League, both leagues contributing three teams that are still in existence today. The BAA contributing the New York Knickerbockers, Philadelphia Warriors, and Minneapolis Lakers, while the NBL provided the Boston Celtics, The Fort Wayne Pistons, and the Rochester Royals, now known as the Sacramento Kings. For whatever reason, the NBA has chosen to embrace the BAA as its antecedent, rather than the NBL, which was first formed in 1937. I don't bring any of this up simply to offer a history lesson. I bring it up because I want to preface this entire episode with something that should always be kept in mind when thinking about the NBA. It is not a guardian of the game of basketball. It is a business that profits off it. If you view it that way, everything that it does will make sense. And chances are you will spend fewer nights or at least fewer hours asking yourself, why would they do that? Chances are you ask that because You are a basketball fan. You love the game, which at times will lead you to question if what the NBA is doing is in the best interest of the game. There are times when that is a very fair question, and the answer might actually be no. But invariably, what the NBA does is good for basketball, the business. The 75th anniversary is a case in point. A new logo is being trotted out, which means new merchandise, new video montages created from archival footage, events built around revisits to some of the most spectacular moments in the League's history, which means, all of it means, vehicles for selling more advertising. Why? Because the League is in need of an accelerant. A boost, if you will. Today's own owners will never go broke because the league will continue to be a cash cow. But the rate of return has slowed in recent years, as has the overall interest in watching or purchasing the actual product or its side hustles. The viewing numbers have flattened, or in some cases spiraled in recent years, and the majority of today's owners have, are used to making 5 or 10x on their investments. Maybe it's just coincidence that the 75th anniversary hoopla is coming shortly after the league suffered, as did all of sports, from the pandemic-induced shortened seasons and empty arenas and arm's length coverage. But the 1996 50th anniversary celebration also arrived as the league was dealing with issues that threatened both its popularity and its bottom line. The first lockout ever occurred before the 95-96 season. It lasted a couple of months and didn't disrupt the season and only delayed the signing of free agents and post-draft trades. But it was a harbinger that team owners were looking to secure a bigger piece of the NBA pie, and over the next two summers they would do exactly that. Labor unrest became part of the league. The celebration of the 50th anniversary and announcement of the league's top 50 players was a respite from, at that time, nine-figure owners arguing with eight-figure players over a mountain of money. Fans were turned off by the greed and the preoccupation with who got what. Focus on the top 50 and the league's history coaxed fans to look back toward a simpler time. Bill Russell running around in canvas converse and players getting dressed in locker rooms lit by bare light bulbs. It wasn't about money then. So here we are, the league trying to come out from under all sorts of issues that have created uncomfortable press conferences for Commissioner Adam Silver. Accusations of hypocrisy that has taken a strong stand in support of Black Lives Matter but appearing to look the other way on alleged human rights violations to protect its business relationship with china accusations of a money grab over its insistence on holding all-star weekend in atlanta in the midst of otherwise strict mandates to prevent its players or fans from contracting or spreading covid19 internal disagreement between players in the league about kneeling or other forms of protest during the national anthem for basketball fans The selection and announcement of a top 75 list has the potential of being not only bittersweet, but even potentially upsetting. Not exactly the distraction that I think the NBA would be looking for. And it's for one simple reason. Because the top 75 has been preceded by a top 50. A devoted NBA fan reached out to me via my Instagram feed to express his concern that if a wholly new 75 all-time greats are selected by a panel that includes current players, executives, and media, there is a good chance that it will be skewed toward modern-day players, and some legends that were among the top 50 will be dropped in favor of more current stars. It's a legitimate concern but I'm not quite ready to light the torches and gather the pitchforks to storm NBA HQ. I've reached out to NBA Communications to find out if a selection formula or process has already been decided, how members of the selection committee will be chosen, and if indeed players from the top 50 list are at risk of not being among the top 75. I have not heard back from them yet. I will let you know when I do. Looking at the top 50, the current top 50, I can pinpoint a number of players who I could see being vulnerable because of today's emphasis on statistics and individual accolades as much or more than championship rings. Case in point, no one is up in arms about Robert Ori not being in the Hall of Fame or taking issue that he deserves more recognition. Nobody's carrying that flag because his individual statistics are not noteworthy. Yet, the man has seven rings and played a significant role on every one of those championship teams. His contribution is not measured in how much, but when. There's a reason that his minutes went up in the playoffs from the regular season every single year. He was never along for the ride, the way, say, J.R. Smith picked up a ring in the bubble with the Los Angeles Lakers, and I don't mean to pick on J.R. His name just came up in a conversation earlier today in conjunction with him going back to school to play collegiate golf, and someone asked when he last played in the league, so he's top of mind when it comes to guys who happen to be on a roster that won a title, and I'm not saying that we apply the Robert Ory case to everyone, but seven rings is seven rings. Nobody in the modern era outside of the Boston Celtics has that many. It's worth consideration, except if you're obsessed with statistics. You'd have to have seen Ori play when he started for the Rockets, two back-to-back championship teams, or his clutch shooting and stellar defense for the three-peat Lakers, or a similar role for two San Antonio teams. You'd have to understand how smart he was, how well he could play off his teammates at both ends of the floor. Skills that Russell Westbrook and Carmelo Anthony, to cite two current statistical Hall of Famers, Have never developed to the level of Ori. And that's just a guy from the 90s. What are the chances that Nate Thurmond, with his zero championships, zero league MVPs, and 15 points and 15 rebound averages over a 14 year career, will be fully appreciated? Or Bill Walton, whose 6,215 points are easily the fewest scored by any of the top 50 players. Or Earl Monroe whose resume highlights are being a four-time All-Star and the fourth leading scorer on the Knicks' 73 championship team. Who is going to put into context what Paul Arizon or Hal Greer or Dave Bing or Billy Cunningham were as players in their day? Not me. I trust that those guys are in the top 50 for a reason. In part because I've talked to people who played with them, who... Were executives in the league when I came along, but I wouldn't be able to make a strong argument on their behalf. Bill Bill Walton, I can and would. Nate Thurmond as well, having spent time both with him and some of his closest friends and teammates. Warriors executive Al Adels and another top 50 player, Rick Barry. If esteemed longtime NBA writers such as Bob Ryan and Peter vesey are on the committee. I feel better about fair representation because I know both of them would raise holy hell with and possibly even take a swing at any newcomer who stood up and started talking PER and win shares and defensive plus minus if it wasn't backed up by God honest wins and clutch postseason performances. And now that I think about it, I hope one or both of those guys are on the committee and they're are a few analytics obsessed members of the media john hollinger comes to mind although i like john and don't have any desire to see him decked i hope they bring them all together that would make for a fascinating committee and i hope they have video what feels so wrong is the idea of taking the honor away from any of those 50. in many cases posthumously It feels like a graveyard robbery or selling a dead man's watch. It suggests that somehow their inclusion the first time around must have been a little fugazi, which also pushes down the players of their era who weren't on the original top 50 and now face the prospect of not being included among the top 75 if it's populated with all modern-day players. A guy like, say, Maurice Lucas, the leading scorer on the Blazers' 77 title team and a five-time All-Star who played in twice as many playoff games as Walton. Or Dominique Wilkins. Now, for some fans out there, fans under 40 say, I'm sure they believe that it's only right that the next 25 spots go to players of the last 20 years and that maybe even a few spots should be opened up from the first 50 to accommodate even more because the skill level is so much higher today than back when the Boston Celtics were dominating the league in the 60s. I'm not here to argue any of that. Thanks to advances in technology, training, sports medicine, equipment, nutrition, athletes are constantly raising the bar. But are we going to penalize great players simply because they were born at the wrong time we're actually doing that now with comparisons of LeBron and Michael Jordan who one did not have all the advantages that LeBron did in the aforementioned categories who played at a time when players were measured by a simple metric can you score can you defend and can you win titles I would say the same applied to the players on those great Celtics teams. It certainly applied to Bill Walton when he led the Portland Trailblazers to a title. I don't know that most players approach it any different today, but the media certainly does. The search to present a player in a different light, to elevate their hidden value, the fascination with data being a foolproof measure of a player's worth has led to ignoring what is actually happening on the court and replacing with staring at a computer screen with data. Players can't help but be aware that they are being judged in that manner, in part because there are front offices who do the exact same thing and, as a result, be influenced by it. I don't know if players back in the 60s and 70s checked the halftime box score to see what their stats were and played the second half with an eye toward getting a triple double or raising their field goal percentage. But I know players today do. I've been around long enough to see the style of play change significantly at least three times from the rough and tumble grind of the 90s to the half-court offensive execution of the odds, to the sprinting, three-point flinging teens. Which I is why I've always believed that recognition of players should be by eras. Every 10 or 15 or 20 years, pick a top 20. To compare Bob Cousy to John Stockton to Russell Westbrook is absurd. And yet, we will have a top 75 and we'll mix them all together and we'll see ultimately who is left out who it serves the, the most and I'm, I know one particular entity that it will serve well and that is the NBA because it will generate revenue, it will generate interest and it may may, if they're lucky distract us from all the other things that are troubling the NBA currently that seems to be the magic elixir that these all-time great lists provide all right that does it for this episode of on the ball on the united WeCast network please rate and review the show on itunes or wherever you get your podcasts and in the next episode as of right now i am planning to delve into the idea of a hard knocks for the NBA. LeBron James suggested, after watching the Dallas Cowboys episode 3, I believe it was, suggested that why hasn't there been one for the NBA? I've been thinking about that too, and I do believe there is a reason. But it could be fun to explore exactly what teams we would love to see a hard knocks done on and maybe maybe i will find out exactly why we've never had one as i said i have my suspicions but if i can get an answer from the league on that and the process for picking the top 75 i will bring all of that to you here as i always effort to do in the meantime as always Thanks for listening. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better?